Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Harvardum. Thank you for listening to this podcast, summarizing the September 2020 issue of the journal. This issue is a focus issue on COVID-19-related heart rhythm disorders. The first paper is titled, Enhanced ECG Monitoring of COVID-19 Patients. The authors prospectively identified the indication for ECG in COVID-19 patients and tagged these ECGs to ensure prompt overreading and identification of those with QT prolongation. This process functioned efficiently, identified a high percentage of patients with QT prolongation, and led to relevant interventions. Arrhythmias were rare. No patient developed torsatopon. The next paper is titled QT Interval Prolongation and Torsatopon in Patients with uh, with COVID-19 Treated with Hydroxychloroquine Azithromycin. This is a retrospective study of 251 patients. The authors found that a combination of hydroxychloroquine azithromycin significantly prolonged the QTC interval in patients with COVID-19. This risk mandates careful consideration of hydroxychloroquine azithromycin therapy in light of its unproven efficacy. Strict QTC interval monitoring should be performed if the regimen is given. Next up is a paper titled Behavior of the PR Interval with Increasing Heart Rate in Patients with COVID-19. ECGs from 75 COVID-19 patients were analyzed for PR versus heart rate slope. Of these patients, half showed either no change or paradoxical, paradoxical PR interval prolongation with the increasing heart rate. This finding was associated with increased risk of death and the need for endotracheal intubation. Therefore, the absence of PR shortening with increased heart rate is a predictor of poor outcomes of COVID-19 patients. The following paper is titled COVID-19 and Cardiac Arrhythmias. The authors reviewed 700 patients admitted for COVID-19. There were nine cardiac arrests, 25 incident AF events, nine clinically significant bradyarrhythmias, and 10 non-sustained VTs. All cardiac arrests occurred in patients admitted to the ICU. In addition, admission to the ICU was associated with incident AF and non-sustained VTs after multivariable adjustment. These findings show that cardiac arrests and arrhythmias are likely the consequence of systemic illness and not solely the direct effects of COVID-19 infection. Next up is a paper titled Fatal Arrhythmias, another reason why doctors remain cautious about chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID-19. The authors performed optical mapping studies in guinea pig and rabbit hearts perfused with hydroxychloroquine. The results showed that hydroxychloroquine markedly increased action potential dispersion resulted in development of repolarization alternance and initiated polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. These studies show that hydroxychloroquine is proarrhythmic in animal models. That paper was followed by a case report showing 
chloroquine-induced torsade point in a COVID-19 patient. This paper reported an 84-year-old woman with COVID-19. She was treated with chloroquine diphosphate 500 mg twice daily. Her QTC was prolonged to 627 milliseconds, and she developed torsade point ventricular arrhythmias. The drug was strong, and the patient survived the arrhythmia. This is the first case report of torsade point induced by chloroquine. Next up is a review article titled SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, and Inherited Arrhythmia Syndromes. Depending on the inherited defect involved, these patients may be susceptible to proarrhythmic effects of COVID-19-related issues, such as fever, stress, electrolyte disturbances, and the use of antiviral drugs. Here, the authors describe the potential COVID-19-associated risks and the therapeutic considerations for patients with distinct inherited arrhythmia syndromes and provide recommendations pending local possibilities for their monitoring and management during this pandemic. Coming up next is a review article titled Recognizing COVID-19-Related Myocarditis, the Possible Pathophysiology and the Proposed Guideline for Diagnosis and Management. Human coronavirus-associated myocarditis is known, and a number of COVID-19-related myocarditis cases have been reported. The pathophysiology of COVID-19-related myocarditis is thought to be a combination of direct viral injury and cardiac damage due to the host's immune response. Arrhythmias are not uncommon in COVID-19 patients, but the pathophysiology is still speculative. Nevertheless, clinicians should be vigilant to provide prompt monitoring and treatment. The long-term impact of COVID-19 myocarditis, including the majority of mild cases, remains unknown. The next article is titled QT Prolongation, Torsade Point, and Sudden Death with Short Courses of Chloroquine and Hydroxychloroquine as Used in COVID-19, a Systematic Review. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are now being widely used for treatment of COVID-19. Both medications prolong the QT interval and uh, accordingly may put patients at increased risk for torsade point and sudden death. There is compelling evidence that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine induce significant QT interval prolongation and potentially increase the risk of arrhythmia. Daily electrocardiographic monitoring and other risk mitigation strategies should be considered in order to prevent possible harms from what is currently an unproven therapy. Next up is another review article titled Prophylactic hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19, potential relevance for cardiac arrhythmia risk. This review provides an overview of the current evidence of hydroxychloroquine therapy in patients COVID-19 and discusses different strategies for prophylactic hydroxychloroquine therapy. In particular, the potential cardiac effects, including QT prolongation and arrhythmias, were addressed. Based on these insights, recommendations will be presented as to which preventive measures should be taken when giving hydroxychloroquine prophylactically 
including ECG monitoring. That paper was followed by another review article titled Genetic Susceptibility for COVID-19-Associated Sudden Cardiac Deaths in African-Americans. African-Americans account for 26% of confirmed COVID-19 cases, but 43% of COVID-19 deaths. A potentially pro-arrhythmic common variant of SCN5A present in one out of 13 individuals of Afri African descent has the potential to increase the risk of drug and hypoxia-induced hypoxia ventricular arrhythmias, sudden cardiac deaths, and contribute to observed racial health disparities in the COVID-19 pandemic. As such, the use of unproven QTC-prolonging COVID-19 directed therapies, most notably the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, should be limited to settings where careful cardiac monitoring can be implemented. The above papers were followed by three society articles that provide guidance to cardiac electrophysiology practice and arrhythmia monitoring during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are also regular manuscripts in the journal. The first one is titled Significance of Fragmented QRS Complexes for Predicting New Onset Atrial Fibrillation After Cable Tricuspid Isthmus-Dependent Atrial Flutter Ablation. The present study included 120 consecutive patients who underwent radiofrequency caster ablation of typical atrial flutter. Patients with a history of AF before RF caster ablation were excluded. During 3.6 years of follow-up after RFCA, 49 patients, or 41%, developed new-onset atrial fibrillation. Statistical analysis revealed that the presence of fragmented QRS complexes and advanced interatrial block were predicted, predictors of new-onset AF. The authors conclude that the new-onset AF developed in a significant portion of patients undergoing atrial flutter ablation. The presence of fragmented QRS complexes and advanced intraatrial block were predictors of new-onset AF. Next up is acute and long-term results of bipolar radiofrequency caster ablation of refractory ventricular arrhythmias of deep intramural origin. The study included 18 patients who underwent bipolar radiofrequency caster ablation for VT. Although unipolar RFCA was performed in all patients, either it failed to suppress VT or VT recurred. The authors found that bipolar radiofrequency caster ablation achieved acute success in 16 patients, or 89%. Complications during the procedure included complete atrial ventricular block in two patients and coronary artery stenosis in one patient. At 12 months follow-up, VT reoccurred in eight patients or 44%. While the recurrence rate is high, there was a significant reduction in VT burden among those recurred. More patients will be needed to determine the values of bipolar radiofrequency caster ablation in refractory VT. 
The next article is efficacy and safety of combined endocardial epicardial VT ablation in Chagas disease, a randomized control study. The authors randomized patients with Chagas disease and VT in a one-to-one fashion to either the endocardial mapping and the ablation group or the combined endocardial epicardial mapping and ablation group. They found that combined endo-EPVT ablation in patients with Chagas disease significantly increases short- and long-term freedom from all ventricular arrhythmias. Epicardial access did not increase periprocedural complication rate. Coming up is anatomical approach with bipolar ablation between the left pulmonic cusp and left ventricular outflow tract for left ventricular summit arrhythmias. Seven patients underwent bipolar RF ablation from left pulmonary cusp to the LVOT in patients who failed conventional RFCA. Bipolar RF ablation resulted in ventricular arrhythmia suppression in five or seven patients. The authors conclude that in patients with LV summit arrhythmias arising from the inaccessible region and refractory to conventional RF castor ablation, an anatomical approach using bipolar RF ablation from the left pulmonary cusp to the opposite LVOT is an effective alternative approach. Next paper is osteodimensional changes after pulmonary vein isolation post-field ablation versus radiofrequency ablation. Data were analyzed from four paroxysmal atrial fibrillation ablation trials using either post-field or RF for ablation. PV osteodiameters decreased significantly less with post-field than RF. PV narrowing or stenosis was not observed in post-field ablation versus about one-third of pulmonary veins and the patients who underwent RF ablation. This study indicates that the instance and the severity of PV narrowing and the stenosis after PV isolation is virtually eliminated with post-field ablation. Next up is subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillator troubleshooting in patients with left ventricular assist devices a case series and systematic review. The authors report four patients who developed electromagnetic interference in the primary and or secondary vectors after LVAD implantation, resulting in inappropriate ICD shocks in two patients. Eight studies involving 27 patients were identified in the systematic review. The authors conclude that under-sensing and electromagnetic interference are common after LVAD implantation in patients with subcutaneous ICD in situ, particularly in the primary and secondary sensing vectors. Under-sensing in the alternate vector may improve during follow-up, obviating the need for device revision or extraction. The next article is percutaneous approaches for retrieval of an embolized or malpositioned left atrial appendage closure device in multicenter experience. 
Ten successful percutaneous and one surgical retrievals comprised the study. The duration before delayed retrieval ranged from one to forty-five days. The reason for retrieval from the left atrial appendage was inadequate develop,、uh, deployment, resulting in a significant peri-device leak. Five patients were successfully re-implanted with a larger-sized Watchman device. The authors conclude that the retriever, retrieval of an embolized or malpositioned Watchman closure device is feasible, and the familiarity with snares and grasping tools can facilitate a successful removal. Coming up next is. Axillary vein puncture guided by ultrasound versus cephalic vein dissection in pacemaker and defibrillator implant, a multicenter randomized clinical trial. This prospective multicenter clinical trial included 88 adult patients randomized one to one to axillary vein puncture versus cephalic vein dissection. For the primary outcome, a higher success rate was observed in the axillary group. As well as lower rate of venous access side change, and shorter time to obtain venous access and procedural time, with no difference in complication rate. These results indicate that the auxiliary approach was superior in terms of success rate, time to obtain venous access, and procedural time with similar complication rate. The next article is tachyarrhythmia. Discriminator for implantable cardioverter defibrillators in bundle branch block. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the ability of a novel discriminator using far field and near field right ventricular lead electrograms to differentiate VT from SVT in patients with underlying conducted narrow QRS right bundle branch block or left bundle branch block. The authors found that far-field to near-field interval cutoff of 100 milliseconds was 100% specific for VT discrimination, regardless of underlying QRS morphology. The authors conclude that prolonged far-field to near-field interval on intracardiac electrogram during tachycardia is highly specific discriminator for VT, regardless of baseline QRS morphology. Coming up is outcomes of subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillator in dialysis patients. Results from the SICD post-approval study. There were 220 patients in hemodialysis at the time of implantation, out of 1,637 patients enrolled in the SICD post-approval study. The authors found that subcutaneous ICD. Is associated with similar adverse event rate, but a higher risk of inappropriate and appropriate therapy in dialysis patients than in non-dialysis patients. The next article is safety and efficacy of Lila's pacemaker for cardio inhibitory vasovagal syncope. The authors studied 72 patients, including 24 with Lila's pacemaker and 48 with conventional transvenous pacemaker. And followed them up for a year. They found that in patients with cardio inhibitory vasovagal syncope, 
single chamber leadless pacemaker demonstrated equivalent efficacy in reducing syncopal events compared to dual chamber conventional transvenous pacemaker with a similar safety profile. The next one is small conductance calcium activated potassium channels promote J wave syndrome and uh, phase 2 re entry. The authors carried out computer simulations of single cell and tissue models. SK channels in the model were assigned to preferentially sense calcium in the bulk of cytosol, subsarcolemal space, or junctional cleft. The results show that the co-localization of SK channels with L-type calcium channels allows the SK channel to preferentially sense calcium in the subsarcolemal or, jun or junctional space, leading to spiky SK current, which can functionally play a similar role of the transient hour K current in promoting J-wave syndrome and ventricular arrhythmias. Coming up next is the role of angiotensin-like protein 2 in atrial fibrosis induced by human epicardial adipose tissue. Analysis using organal culture system. Human peri-left atrial epicardial adipose tissue and abdominal, abdominal subcutaneous adipose tissue were collected from nine autopsy cases. The epicardial adipose tissue conditioned medium induced atrial fibrosis in organo cultured red atrium with a progressive increase in the number of myofibroblasts. The angiotensin-like protein 2 contained in epicardial adipose tissue played a crucial role in inflammatory atrial fibrosis. These results also suggest that antagonizing the expression of angiopoietin-like protein 2 in epicardial adipose tissue can be a novel therapeutic approach to prevent atrial fibrillation. The next paper is a direct comparison of a novel anti-tachycardia pacing algorithm against present methods using virtual patient modeling. Virtual patient scenarios were constructed from MRI and EP data. Cardiac EP simulation software was used to generate reentrant VT. Anti-tachycardia pacing was then attempted to terminate the VT. The authors found that the automated ATP successfully adapted ATP sequences to terminate VT episodes that burst ATP failed to terminate. Automated ATP was successful with complex scar geometries and EP heterogeneity as seen in real world. This new algorithm may, be improve, may improve the outcomes of anti-tachycardia pacing. These original articles were followed by a contemporary review article titled Modern Mapping and Ablation Techniques to Treat Ventricular Arrhythmias from the Left Ventricular Summit and Interventricular Septum, and a Creative Concept article titled High Resolution Live Directional Mapping. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Pen Chen.